0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Christopher Harrison. Chris is an instructor of political science at Northern Arizona University, and he's the author of a terrific new book titled Genocidal Conscription, Drafting Victims and Perpetrators Under the Guise of War. Chris, thanks for joining us. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me to join you, Kelly. I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to our
0: conversation. So I start with the same place. Uh, and so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the study of mass atrocity violence.
1: Well, uh, I was uh, born in London in England. I'm originally from the British Isles, and I say that purposefully to include both the Republic of Ireland, mm. and also England and Scotland, that's my main uh, family ancestry. Oh. And if anyone knows anything about the British Isles, that's pretty contentious uh, amongst those groups. So I essentially heard growing up different stories from uh, the struggles of independence on the Irish side, mm. uh, which to the English government, at least not necessarily all of the United Kingdom, Is considered terrorist uh, organizations and their um, efforts to undermine the British monarchy. So there were some heated family reunion type events growing up, but um, with love, you know, with kindness and grace, (laughs) um, but very politically charged kind of environment. Um, So very early on as a young child, I would hear different stories in the family's history. Um, And that even includes very patriotic um, kind of family events in terms of ancestors, memorials, and warfare. So from um, going into school, especially uh, in in the equivalent of K-12 high school years, I was always getting into arguments with my history teachers in particular who were very often inclined to put forward an orthodox awe you know, the establishment's view of events, whereas my own family's histories had taught me these divergent and diverse viewpoints. So I was hoping to get into uh, learning more and then eventually teaching history and politics at some point, which thankfully I do so now.
0: So I think I caught a note in your book that you started out in history and you have moved to political science. So as a historian, I'm I I have to ask why you moved to the dark side.
1: Well, the, uh, the short answer is uh, being able to progress from the MA to the PhD level. Uh, there was a little bit more movement in terms of programs and opportunities for political science. But it came down to my research scope, which was by the time I had completed a master's thesis, looking at the... Uh, use of conscripts by governments plural across different as soon as I left one case and went into different cases, comparative history PhDs are very scarce on the ground versus a political science approach which then employs uh, historical analysis and comparative methodologies Uh, so that's the longer version of why switching out to political science more so than history Rather than try to do the micrograin analysis of one case, I was interested in patterns by which different governments were uh, allocating conscripts deemed uh, essentially unwanted uh, portions of populations in a number of cases. Uh, and so that then led me through to political science as my uh, terminal degree
0: so that's it sounds like your book genocidal conscription has a, a long history to it um why did what 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 made you become interested in this subject and, and why spend i don't know four or five six years of your life writing a book about it
1: well it has been a journey all the way back until my earliest memories of uh historical events and uh, to some degree fairly f- personal uh, in terms of family background and history and i had a puzzle essentially uh, formed when i was a child when my father provided um, a little bit of context of the family name so harrison it's not quite smith or jones but it's it's close to it in terms of uh, a, a british um a northern european name um and so there was an ancestor, my great grandfather, who uh, fought and served in World War One, and he died in a, a very prominent battle, the Battle of the Somme. And it's still today, over a hundred years after the events, a contentious memory. Uh, never mind the events themselves. And so when I was a very young child, uh, about seven years old, my dad told me a story about the what the family had. Attempted to piece together about what had happened during the war. Um, and then ever since, uh, most, I wouldn't say all, but almost all history lessons about it had become very impersonal. Hmm. So there was such a giant chasm between uh, the presentation of the content, the presentation, of the information, and the experiences of real life, uh, mm-hmm. real lives that meant I wanted to try to bridge some of that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I began to look into uh, conscription policies, recognizing how tremendously varied all of these but different policies are. Sometimes there's maybe three or four different uh, tools by which states can use conscription in one country, never mind then going looking at different countries. So it has been some uh, significant amount of research time before. I was able to convince enough people that it should be a dissertation mm-hmm. which I was able to put together uh, finish that in 2021 and then um having talked about conscription to various people for almost 10 years by that point um that then all of a sudden we have not necessarily quite a Western but certainly you, you know European conscription issues back on, Uh, the agenda in terms of public consumption because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I had already started to look at the issues of Russia uh, historically, uh, considering the use of conscripts in various ways. Um, And so the transition from dissertation to book was instead of a strictly historical comparative analysis of two cases, which this book was, uh, beginning in its first form as a dissertation, I then added a contemporary analysis. What does conscription look like today? And that uh, by itself took over a year to figure that part out as well. So, you know, several uh, different steps along the path to putting the book
0: together. Well, it's a fascinating book. Let's turn to talk about it. Uh, and from the 30,000 foot level, what, what's the question that you're answer, asking in this book? And, and And what's the couple sentence answer?
1: So the question I pose is uh, essentially asking whether or not genocidal states have utilized conscription to uh, provide an infrastructure and an institution through which those regimes could then commit genocide. And not just whether this has happened, but then also investigating how this could have happened. Um, and so the 30,000 view answer is that surprisingly most, um, maybe not most, I, I'll qualify that many, many genocidal genocidal regimes have utilised some forms of mandatory service um, as a way to capture uh, their victims, and then in specific more narrowed cases, you can also uh, find research and evidence that points to the recruitment of perpetrators to then also become empowered by the state armed, trained and deployed to commit genocide. And the second part of that answer, the issue of perpetrators was something that I had not originally seen Mm. uh, when I was investigating during my time as a grad student. Um, except for more exceptional circumstances where uh, militia groups, auxiliaries, were involved in massacres, genocidal massacres, but to try to then uh, investigate the extent to which a state was ordering and indeed issuing conscription orders to empower perpetrators, that was something that developed further on in my investigation.
0: There's a lot of interesting stuff in that. Let's let's start to unpack it. And first, um, as you point out in the book, uh, you, the, the, any attempt to think about this requires you to think about definitions. And without getting into the long, the the large literature about the advantages and disadvantages of the UN definition, why tell? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about why you chose the definition of genocide you are and that you use, and what elements of that definition are most relevant to your thesis?
1: Well, given the pretty thorough training I went through as a grad student, um, I recognize the importance of acknowledging the multiple definitions that exist. Yet, if we're going to talk about criminal activity, it really is an aspect of bringing in the United Nations definition from 1948 at the same time little caveat i also think it's relevant and important to take on raphael lemkin's work as the person that came up with the original term and definition and as a result you've got something of a dispute which has then led to these many many different definitions and what that dispute is comes down to the issue of intent because you could argue that both Lemkin and the UN didn't necessarily clarify exactly what that means. What is the intent? What are the levels in terms of criminal uh, capacities to prosecute those charged with uh, an indictment or some other form of charge that having committed committed genocide? So the definition um, that I focus in on is the UN's which attempts to make the point as to uh, the intentional destruction of a group based on four specific categories of population or social groups uh, being religious, racial, uh, ethnic, and religious. And as a result, you've got um, the idea of we could more easily identify victim groups but not necessarily know how to demonstrate or point to a potential or suspect's intent to destroy that group. And so this is the the stumbling block of genocide studies and, in many ways, genocide uh, cases brought to various courts, either national or international. So as a result of the, the messiness, if you like, of these gaps that exist in what was uh, a, a very valiant humanitarian effort uh, after World War II to attempt to prevent and potentially intervene and uh, even prosecute those who may have committed such crimes. I think it's, for me, um, in need of reform, in need of update. And I would even go as far as to say we might want to look back at Lincoln's mm. work to figure out what that might look like. Um, and and the reasons why is because although the UN's definition does include specific acts, uh, there are five distinct acts that we could point to and talk about. Um, again, because of this ambiguous concept of intent, or it, it, a lot of atrocities, and even uh, kind of using the adjective of genocidal massacres Mm -hmm. and the potential aspect of a crime it 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 ends up being often this abstract and, and somewhat philosophical debate rather than the practicalities of events and i would point to Lemkin as being someone that thoroughly analyzed and discussed what it means when you have acts of destruction and then also this secondary category which is an imposition and this is something I haven't seen that much uh, talked about outside of scholarly debates and conferences and some articles here and there. Inside the different positions, is in many ways those uh, four of the five outcomes, four of the five actual criminal acts of genocide as a crime that you the UN does uh, talk about and explain outside of the first of those five acts, which is killing members of the group. And so you could talk about destruction as killing, but then impositions is this squirrely space in which the UN attempts to point to certain acts. Um, but if you see a very powerful entity that has committed destruction intentionally, and then is imposing rules, regulations, policies that lead to the continued destruction of that group, and you have some evidence that points to, yes, and this is through uh, the execution of a plan, then you're talking about genocide. Uh, and I think that the, there's not necessarily consensus, but there's a lot of support for the idea that the UN's definition could do with a few updates. Um, since what what are we at now? Mm-hmm. Do the math. Um, at least you know six six decades later, uh, seven. Yeah, a long time since 1948.
0: So you so, so you spend some time talking about that. You also spend some time talking about the history of conscription, the other word in there, your title. And so I wonder, in particular, you talk about this idea of wastage. So maybe we can start that. What is wastage, and where does this idea come from, and why is it important in your work? Excellent.
1: Thank you. Yes, so this is the the, the crux of the book, crux of the argument. The, the issue of wastage is um, essentially the explanation of casualties in war. However, it's not as simple as just saying that and leaving it there because of the uh, modern uh, kind of uh, touchstone work of modern warfare from Carl von Klauswitz. And so. In on war and Klauswitz was uh, someone who served as a, a boy soldier, then moved up into uh, areas of command. It was also training as a Prussian military strategist from the early 1800s, uh, and so this concept of wastage comes from on war, uh, and the reason why it's so um, foundational and uh, influential is that Klauswitz has essentially been used since. Essentially, certainly 1850s onwards as one of the must-reads and uh, the, the the training manuals of essentially every Western government since then. And it's obviously beyond the West as well as a result of Cold War with uh, proxy allies being trained in Western uh, kind of Prussian military order. Um, so Klaus Fitz's concept of wastage is this idea of casualties, but at the same time, what the goal of um, war is, essentially the destruction of an enemy and also the breaking of their will to continue in the fight. And so Clausewitz uses this concept of wastage to explain not just casualties, but potential casualties, those that might fall in a future battle who has enough reserves to maintain the fight. And if you are able to wear down the front line, then exceed those losses into an enemy's reserves, also uh, destroy the enemy to the point at which you're then able to take territory Hmm. and then capture resources, you're increasingly... Uh, leading to their defeat and your victory. So, the concept of wastage is um, essentially in that Clauswitzian concept, uh, the accounting of casualties on both sides and the potential losses that may occur in the future. That definition changed hmm. uh, a few generations after Clauswitz uh, was involved in military affairs. And so, by um, the First World War or World War I, you have uh, an adaption of Clausewitzian wastage to assess the losses in uh, what military historians may well also uh, often call this war of attrition, mm-hmm. the great war of so many numbers of armies facing off against each other with hundreds of thousands of troops on each side. And so how are you going to be able to maintain and assess losses in such mass carnage, while there was a, a particularly um, focused uh, recognition of the wastage taking place. And so, it's not—it's not, it's not um, a derogatory term. You know, think of waste as a, a kind of refuse or garbage. It's not anything like that. It's—it's it's an older um, term from uh, you know easily around 200 years ago, translated into English from German Verbrauch, which you might also consider as reduction or uh, consumption. It's sometimes considered as, um, and so it's this wearing down of the enemy's forces and also recognition of how much has your own force worn down from their assaults. So wastage is this concept where it has been Uh, utilized in the calculations of governments observing how their militaries have performed. And so it is this crux of the argument because once you are aware as a a governing body, a regime, looking at what your military is doing, looking at what your opponent's military is doing, what the reduction and the rates of reduction look like, now you're able to assess where do you put troops in? When is it best to maybe just call it and withdraw? How are you able to work out the number of recruits that are necessary to maintain the fight? And are you able to even project what it might look like How many recruits are you gonna to need to gather? Is volunteerism going to meet those requirements or is it time for conscription? And so this is um, pretty, I wouldn't necessarily say basic, but it it's um, fundamental in, War studies that analyze Clausewitzian strategies and theories that have, as I say, for two hundred years or so, been utilized by many different states, um, and then elevated into this uh, consideration of what can take place because of the modern weaponry and the mass armies introduced in World War I. And so, as a result of that pivot, my argument is that there is a close but delineate a difference between wastage for the attempts of victory in war versus genocide by wastage, which is the um, application of conscription and recruitment and deployment of unwanted groups of the population who are pushed out into the deadly environments of war, hmm. suffer losses because there's an intent by their own government to kill and kill off Members of that community, particularly battle-aged men.
0: So, we'll, let me. One of the things that really struck me about this chapter, and I don't want to talk about the, I, I, we don't have time. I would love to, but I don't have time to talk about the history of conscription. But one of the things I found really interesting was your talk, your discussion about the way in which targeting specific components of a government's population is not new, and is not in itself genocidal. And one of the particular thing that I learned was that the British government in the First World War specifically drafted working class men to send to the front line because they were viewed to be less valuable in the long term for uh, what British society would need during and after the war. So can you say a little bit of, at least that's what I remember from the book. Can you say a little bit about how governments have drafted specific components of their population in a way that was not? Genocidal?
1: Yes, and it is a very um, significant problem, but also an aspect that provides the basis upon which we can then examine well, what is a genocidal state? What are utilizations of conscription by such regimes? Because many different states have looked to continue the deployment of troops to front lines in an ongoing war and also prepare for the potential of of an outbreak of a conflict in terms of maybe also essentially uh, recruiting and training people as a deterrent to the potential enemies. You've had a a long history, um, in many ways, as long as recorded history uh, for who it is that's going to serve, who it is that's going to fight. And because of the issues in terms of the risk, the obvious risk that such uh, members of society are um, exposed to in warfare, there has been a significant amount of reward applied to different population groups who have become uh, soldiers in particular, but also to some extent conscripts. So it depends where you're going to look in terms of how conscripts have been treated by multiple different states and what the um, aspects are when it comes to legitimate methods of conscription for defense versus uh, offense against an opponent deemed vulnerable to an assault, to an attack, Uh, and then also this other aspect that I argue, which is genocidal conscription in specific cases, particularly of genocidal regimes. So there's uh, in terms of modern history, and it's probably best to to also pin this uh, little part of our uh, uh, to talk about what's gone on since Clausewitz, because of this idea of uh, essentially looking to train an officer class that is well informed of what's likely to take place when troops go up against modernized weapons versus the infantry, who are often uh, provided various messages from the state of patriotism, very impassioned concepts of defending one's community, defending one's nation, uh, and and is legitimately in the training of these two-tier forms of, of military, since Clausewitz. Uh, and he argued for this as well, and it has since become a very, very, very important aspect of many different governments. So, Once you've got uh, a well-informed officer and commander class that is willing and able to throw perhaps as many as 100,000 bodies into a battle at once, you need 100,000 bodies. You need to be able to go recruit and, and have the consistent replenishment, replacement, reserve capacity to fill gaps that take place along your front line. So um, in particular, World War I is this turning point where, as you mentioned, with the British case, uh, commanders, various uh, veterans, imperial, in their outlook, scrambled for many different ways to try to bring up the numbers. Because after the first few months of the war, volunteers dramatically dropped off once Word had spread of how devastating the carnage was uh, against Germany. And so as a result of um, conscription, the British case is specifically something that I draw upon because of the transition from what had been volunteer-based, what had been uh, yeoman's duty to go out into the empire and have uh, tremendous rewards uh, provided for those that survived fighting in imperial conquests. Throughout the 1800s. And it was very much different for the British and its empire than the French and its empire and its allies and proxies, who had since the Mass Levy, the, the Levy en masse, as it's called, uh, from revolutionary era France, began to recruit, conscript, train, and send out by deployment uh, what ended up being several millions of French men to sustain the revolutionary state. Mm. That then led into Napoleon's grand army that then conquered much of Europe, fell short of conquering Russia. And that was uh, what Clausewitz saw and recognized as this very important need, very centralized state authority with the knowledge, with the understanding of what's gonna take place when war breaks out and then also impassioned patriotic infantry ranks who would take up the burden of the fight on the front lines, obviously with offices available and present in numbers as well, but far less so than uh, the conscripted masses. So the uh, issue of figuring out who's gonna serve, what group of the population is perhaps a well in which the state can tap the fruits. That's the biggest um, uh, factor in modern wars and modern societies that I look at when it comes to um, the different ways that conscription has been used by multiple different states. Uh, and, and what happened, especially in World War I, is this normalization of mass wastage. Societies became Somewhat indoctrinated, but certainly provided with this um, assumption that the carnage will take place and it will continue after the initial shock for the British. But when you talk to, um, I should say, talk to, you, but if you look at the re- research, if you talk to historians of French and German histories, uh, the Germans even had a term um, in terms of cannon fodder, right? The idea that you're going to have mass carnage, you're going to have mass. Casualties, there's going to be wastage. The French were aware of it since Napoleon on, and much of Central Europe was aware of it since Clausewitz on. The British were late to the party. They did not have conscription until 1916 when the British realized they couldn't win the war only with their navy. They had to also construct a mass army in the model of continental Europe, Uh, and so they did so beginning Uh, 1915 and into 1916.
0: So you lay out a five point process or schema or model, pick your word, um, that you argue typifies genocidal conscription. Can you talk us through that model and what it typically looks like? So
1: the five step phases that I focus in on, uh, they are uh, beginning with division in society and considering exactly which groups may yield some conscripts through um, this divisive aspect in which you have states take control of particularly targeted subsections of population, especially the unwanted potential victim group, become isolated. And so the first stage is division. The second stage is isolation. After that, the third stage, once targets are isolated, and often we're talking about battle-aged younger men of a particular community that a state is attempting to commit genocide against or wipe out some uh, kind of destructive force. The third category is subordination, because not only have uh, social divisions created some kind of Um, derogatory perception of the target group, and then isolation has essentially surrounded the young men of those communities. Subordination is the point at which uh, the young men, and it's older men as well, sometimes even boys, teenagers as well, they're conscripted and put under the authority of the state, and that may well even include perpetrators that are looking to expend those lives of those communities. And in some cases, the subordination by the state even includes uh, perpetrators that were themselves conscripts. So it gets tremendously complicated because of the many different levers the state can pull when applying conscription policies, especially given the multiple emergency powers that come along once bloodshed is spilt, once war is at large throughout society, especially in, so this is back to World War I, why World War I in particular, the era and the advent of total war for multiple different countries. So the total mobilization societies as a result of um, centralized states, uh, the technologies available to monitor populations as well as create uh, new technologies for warfare. And so after this element of subordination, there's this um, issue as to whether or not you're going to look at exploitation of conscripts for war, which, as we talked about in a couple of cases, it's it's prominent, uh, essentially, in any case where conscription takes place. You're going to have some who are conscripted specifically so that they die on the front line as a legitimate security measure against an opponent in the state's attempt to pursue victory. But then there's this question of genocidal regimes that do the same thing, and they're not actually looking to uh, necessarily pursue victory, but they could be, but at the same time, they're expending the lives of this unwanted section of their populations. And so through uh, this third stage to the fourth stage is essentially a, a, a line at which genocidal regimes cross, and there's a fair argument to be made that we're not talking about exploitation of conscripts to fight in the war, but now you're looking at the issue of this is an act intentionally pursued to destroy those conscripts by their own state. So the fourth stage is this relocation to the deadly environments, the fifth stage being destruction itself in some form. And in my argument in the book, I'm delineate two specific outcomes of this destructive element, this destructive stage. The first is uh, this concept of wastage, as we've already discussed, being thrown into front lines against uh, perhaps uh, insurmountable defenses of the opposition, skirmishes along the front lines, clearing out minefields, and using the considered or deemed Disposable elements of that targeted community to do so, uh, so fully aware of the wastage, the casualties, the destruction that will take place, and with the intent. This is where it's very uh, challenging for my own researchers to actually point to the intent of the state to kill and kill off those particular conscripts. Um, and then, in, d- in addition to the wastage of what is this guy? Sorry, right, under the guise of there. The idea, well, they died on the front line as as combatants. So where's the blame in that? Where's the fault? Where's the intent? Um, and there is definitely a question as to exactly how to show evidence of that uh, aspect of genocide, as I do in the book. At the same time, you've also got, and this talks about how you could then point to intent, genocide genocidal massacres. So after the four stages, the first four, division, isolation, subordination, relocation, the fifth stage in a different outcome of the destruction is in genocidal massacres. And so when there's evidence of a genocidal regime taking a hold of their own conscripts and massacring them, that's essentially the supportive uh, aspect of my argument in terms of the evidence to demonstrate the intent to commit genocide.
0: So you give us two case studies. Uh, the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, and then Hungary in the Second World War. Um, without, and I'll just point listeners to the book, uh, which is far richer than we're going to have time to talk about here, but but maybe you can say a little bit about why you picked those two case studies?
1: Absolutely. So as I went through, before I get to the cases themselves, as I'll just give a little context. As I went Please. through dissertation, research, years, um, I had previously written an NA thesis uh, to examine conscription by Britain in World War I, and I had stumbled across um, an issue on that case, which came to the political elements of who was uh, organizing what turned out to be the conscription process of tapping into factories, farmyards, uh, shop floors, offices, uh, less educated and less connected middle class but also as you said working class men uh, and the process by which the government began to introduce women workers as substitutes mm. to then push out uh, the what ended up being um, over 700,000 uh, working class and lower middle class men in Britain who were first socially coerced to then Uh, enlist, but also conscripted uh, from uh, 1916 on. As a result of that case, and the complexities of exactly how governments go about uh, constructing and implementing diverse methods of conscription in the specific war Mm. from one particular country, I started to realize that there's a whole range of different Uh, well-documented cases of genocide that I could start to examine and figure out what was going on with the uh, policies of conscription in these many different countries. And so uh, looking at a a range of different cases, whether it be Rwanda with the uh, recruitment of militia forces or looking at auxiliary our military forces in Bosnia-Serbia with the former Yugoslavia. Um, the, the concept of uh, massacre at Srebrenica targeting younger men and also boys, Bosniak, Muslim uh, boys and men, uh, over 7,000 massacred uh, on the outskirts of Srebrenica. There are these incidental elements of potential policies for conscription. But then no state records to say, we are at war, we're conscripting, we're looking to also capture uh, the potential rivals that we see within our own society, other than the most documented cases that we have, I would argue, in genocide studies, which I uh, consider as the Armenian Genocide and the Holocaust. And there's obviously tremendous diverse aspects of how you could go about looking at these particular cases and as a result of their somewhat representative aspects as genocide regimes present in world war one and world war two it provided an aspect and this is where we get into history comparative history versus political science because of Um, The ability to assess different cases in different places, different times, with similar policies, similar causes, similar outcomes. Not the same, right? Each case is unique, but similar enough to point to aspects of potential prevention or maybe intervention. And so because the studies have already taken place, because there's an immense amount of work already looking at Armenian genocide and Holocaust, it provided me with uh, a tremendous amount of research material to try to piece together policies of conscription that states implemented against one group and then differently against another, including targeted communities that those genocidal regimes intended and then also committed genocide against.
0: As I said, we're not going to get a chance to to talk through each chapter, but I wonder if you might say just a little bit about um, some of those similarities and differences. In particular, one of the way wastage happens is by labor. A second Mm -hmm. way that wastage happens is by employing soldiers in operations that you fully intend, Not, I should be more specific, employing soldiers of specific ethnicities or races in operations where you fully anticipate that they will be killed in the course of operations, um, and using them where one of the goals of the operations is that they will be killed. So I wonder wonder if you might say a a little bit about those two ways in which wastage happens.
1: So examining the UN definition genocide, looking at uh
0: race, ethnicity, nationality,
1: religion, the different ways that communities express their own identities is uh, specific for the cases I examined when we look at the Armenian genocide in World War I. Axis-era Hungary is the second case, a part of the Holocaust during World War II. And so the aspect of, are we looking at religious group? Is there maybe ethnic tension amongst different conflict groups? Uh, conflicting groups is it an as- an, an issue of uh, race or perhaps it's uh, a part of the nation and that was where I had originally uh, considered many different cases in terms of well young men belonging to the same nation could that count maybe I don't know exactly how let's take a look at what that looks like and so um, delving into the cases you the, the research began to present Uh, evidence that talked about there were highly stratified military orders based on different subsections of national populations, so including ethnicity for uh, both cases, including the pseudo-racialized elements of uh, Jewish Europeans in Hungary in the second case, including religious differences in the first case with Armenian Christians, and Christians generally from other populations, Coptic Greek, uh, Syrians, versus the pan-Islamic elements of uh, the the declining Ottoman empire, uh, especially also the ethno-nationalist Turkish element of uh, the Committee of Union and Progress. So you have um, all of, often, not all, but many of the different elements of different groups and how they self-identify, how the perpetrator state is identifying them as well at the same time. Sometimes they match, sometimes they differ, um, and and so as a as an as an issue of the very complicated aspects of identity in these historical cases, um, it, it comes down to what Ervin Staub has called out groups and in groups. Um, the roots of evil is a fantastic book for anyone interested in genocide studies to examine and the idea being that societies will often have in groups that have the privileges have the opportunities and out groups who do the dirty work who are at the lower end of social hierarchies who will be the ones given the job that no one else wants and that's where you get to see how many societies including genocidal regimes, have operated when it comes to well, who's going to do the hard, arduous graft of forced labor in militaries, at war, who need to build trenches, who need to build roads, who need to explode mountain passes, who need to shift and shovel the snow that's fallen that winter. All of this hard graft is essentially pushed down to the outgroup. For the benefit of the in group. And so, the the way that these militaries, in particular, these genocide regimes, Armenian uh, forced laborers of the Ottoman Empire and Jewish Hungarian conscripts of the labor service in World War II, once Hungary joined the Axis and went to war in the East of Europe, in uh, that second case, those are the groups. And there are other, also similar out groups, who were provided for. Um, to do the dirty work, if you like, when it came to maintaining the military and uh, attempting to uh, entrench defenses but also push forward in offenses. That's the forced labor aspect in this issue of wastage because often there's no food, there's no water, there's no shelter. Medical supplies are withdrawn on purpose. In both cases, there's evidence of these groups, these communities facing torture, abuses, physical harm, for which they were provided no medical supplies, no ability to rest, immediately back to their forced labor duties over and over again. Not anecdotal. Thousands of reports, we have a lot of this evidence to talk to uh, this issue of how forced labor to wear down Uh, The particular communities who the states conscripted to then expend those lives during warfare, during times of war. So even though they're not combatants, uh, even though they're not fighting the enemy um, as and alongside their trained regular recruits, who may also often be conscripts themselves, um, you have this in-group, out-group dynamic that we can clearly point to to identify the victim group versus the perpetrator. And on that issue of combatant versus forced labor, in both cases, there was a point at which both states, and this is where the political historical analysis is useful in the comparison, both states began to scapegoat those communities and then strip all not just volunteers, but conscripts of rank and arms. And that is a very significant aspect in the political science analysis, the comparative elements of these historical cases, because if you see that, that is no longer a red flag. That's a point at which it's it could well be too late to intervene because, as you, and ex, expanding beyond the two cases themselves, think of cases today. Uh, Let's take Russia and the idea that Russia would conscript communities from minority sections of society, even today in occupied Ukraine, the Tatar, Muslim conscripts of men and teenage boys who are being drafted into the Russian military. If they're being told to perform duties of forced labor and there's no one in that community who has weapons at all and right. it could be the, the many other uh, ethnic and racial minority groups that we see uh, as members of Russian conscripted military force. Well, then there's a very big question to ask. Is is that a point at which we see genocide conscription taking place with the result of wastage, the losses that there are that are incurred by that community? The question would obviously lead, well, where's the intent? You'd have to find the intent of the state to do so. And that's an interesting aspect of, of the current uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis. Do we have an intent mm-hmm. to destroy targeted population groups or not? And it's an ongoing issue.
0: So we're running out of time, uh, but that points me to um, kind of where I'd like to end, which is to say, how does how does your book help us think about genocide prevention?
1: So from my background, I was brought up fearing guns. Mm. Having a tremendous, uh, almost a moral objection to people in public being armed in any capacity, a very Hobbesian view of you have to just hand it over to the state to do security. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the the disputes in my family, you know, Irish nationalist, Republican Catholics versus English and others, somewhat Protestant, and more so. Um, happy to join the in-group of the British Isles Um, the idea of taking up arms against your own government or against uh, some opponent was just like it wasn't the last thing to do it wasn't the the last possible way to uh, conduct oneself but it was apparent to do so because often the memories of my family, the losses that they had incurred uh, in the British military, and then also even on the Irish freedom fighters end of um, British politics, but then also the British military abroad, right? You have to sign up. If you're gonna bear arms, you do it for your country. Um, Having become Americanized, I have since learned um, the genuine need in some circumstances, to not just rely on the state, to have some capacity, whether it be that there is a deterrence, whether it be that there is a factor where you can get out of a place that has suddenly spiraled into political violence. And that led me to really examine a lot of my own assumptions and biases in terms of how are you ever going to prevent mass atrocity? Well, originally, before my studies, I was convinced you just need better government you need governments that are going to protect that the idea of sovereignty with the responsibility to protect well that's how you prevent and as we have seen often governments are those committing the atrocities and perhaps also hiring others auxiliaries and militias to do that uh, not uh, to be derogatory, to the dirty work of mass atrocity, genocide. And so as a result of that awareness and learning, wow, okay, yeah, sometimes the person that you think should be doing the security is also actually doing the mass atrocity and genocide. How do you intervene? How do you prevent? Um, and in, in many ways, it is a matter of having a populace that's uh, well-trained in safe and responsible Um, self-security measures Mm. that they're able to resist a government that's attempting to wipe them out. And in the cases I studied, because it was battle-aged men who the state conscripted from Armenian and many other communities during uh, First World War throughout the Royal Ottoman Empire and then also Jewish-Hungarian conscripts, young men, battle-aged men Uh, it's a term that Adam Jones uh, provided for anyone that's interested to go study gender and genocide. Um, This idea that if you remove the people that will otherwise defend those communities, you're already beyond the point of no return to prevent the mass atrocity of the genocide. It's not necessarily always going to take place that way, but it's a very significant early red flag of what's going to take place next. And so, the way to prevent, logically, you'd need to provide efforts to support whoever it is that's going to conduct the security tasks of that minority community. Hmm. And this is where it's often also a factor for contemporary concerns in terms of training women to also be ready, if necessary, to take up arms against some form. Of genocidal regime that may well be uh, attempting to carry out what we would ordinarily consider as tactics of war, but against a civilian population. And so there's an element here of um, just going back to one of the cases in history where you see the the transition from war against a, a military opponent. Let's say uh, the fall of France with the Blitzkrieg attack in 1940, and then the attacks on civilians in Paris in 1941. Hmm. And that difference of what's taking place and who are the opponents and who are the targets of these destructive elements, it does uh, uh, call upon policymakers, foreign policymakers from powerful states, including the United States, uh, the United Nations and others, to say we need a way that those who will... At times, be needed to resist and take up arms against a genocidal regime, we need to actively support those groups. We need to prevent by providing the um, disincentive to go up against and mm. attempt to attack those groups as well. And so, if you look at countries that are authoritarian, there's a way that you can target particular community groups. And say maybe there's a little bit of training, maybe there's a little bit of preventative aspects where they're not going to be stripped of their arms, they're not going to be subordinated, and there isn't a dependency on specifically younger, battle-aged men who would ordinarily take up these security tasks. It may well be uh, decentralized throughout hmm. those particular communities to prevent them being targets and then victims.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book, and I hope the readers, uh, listeners, go out and, and 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 purchase it or or um get it from the library. I always end with the same questions. Um, you've already recommended Erwin Staub, uh, which I, I agree with completely. And for listeners who have not been around for a while, one of the very first interviews I did in this podcast uh, was with Staub um, on his book, Overcoming Evil. Uh, so it's a different book, but both good. Um, do you have a uh, a book or two or maybe a movie or something that um, the listeners, some of whom are academics and are desperately trying to enjoy their last week or two before classes start, um, that they should go read.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So because of the cases and uh, especially we've got a lot of noise around Russia, Ukraine right now, and in terms of the the, the problems that we see uh, time and time again for attempting to bring potential suspects to justice. I'm gonna go back into the historical analysis of the cases in particular, if you wanna learn about World War I, Mm -hmm. um, I would highly recommend uh, what was a book put together by the uh, journal and diary entries of uh, someone who joined up and enlisted as a volunteer in 1914 at the outbreak of the war. And this is with a machine gun to Cambrai it's by George Coppard, and it is the day-to-day in and out of a teenager um, becoming a machine gunner and going through multiple famous batteries uh, battles from their own particular perspective, and it's um, a tremendously insightful uh, eyewitness account of fighting in the war and the wastage that he is witness to. Um, in these very famous battles, so instead of the the more um, sterile analytical concerns of warfare, this is the person that went there and lived through it. Um, it reminds me of a historian, um Carrington, I think it's c e. Carrington, and he was also at the Somme during World War one and he um, was also a part of the British effort World War II. and he he talks about and it's one reason why I bring up this book in particular. Uh, the historians, Viewpoint Carrington, use the word Holocaust to talk about the Battle of the Somme. So you can look at what happened through someone's uh, own experiences with George Coppard's with Machine Gun to Cambrai. Um, The second book I would would recommend is uh, from uh, someone who is around with us today, uh, Fantastic um, humanitarian, and this is Father Patrick Dubois, uh, so I'll spell that out because it's French pronunciation D-E-S-B-O-I-S, and his word, In Broad Daylight. And so this is uh, the secret procedures behind the Holocaust by Bullets. So this phrase, Holocaust by Bullets, talking about the waves of the Einsatzgruppen, um, the assault task groups that went through to Eastern Europe as a result of Operation Barbarossa during World War II, the waves of atrocities and genocidal massacres that took place in the second and third lines that proceeded with the combatants into Ukraine, the Soviet Union, uh, and Eastern Europe, multiple different countries, so in broad daylight provides um, this other element of where we're seeing militaries committing atrocities against civilian population. Often military historians will think of the battles between one uh, force and its other its opponent without realizing once they're gone, if they fall away, if they surrender is, uh, to, to just, again, go back to the French of uh, World War Two capitulation, sure, okay, but is that the end? No. The military' is then going in and attacking civilians in their cities and in their towns. Um, it doesn't happen immediately, necessarily, but it happens. And so, in broad daylight really drives home uh, the warfare that's genocidal committed against civilians by militaries. so it it's a, another you know kind of aspect in the universe of, well, is a conscript a conscript a soldier from my perspective? Mm. sometimes yes, sometimes no. it's a it's a mm. civilian who's Put to forced labour tasks and, and dies off in that role, or put into a minefield, um, for example. So in broad daylight, that's the second book. Um, on on a more kind of visual level, mm-hmm. the 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 acting isn't necessarily um, accurate. And I would say, in terms of the historical analysis, um, I want to make sure I've got the right one. Yeah, it's Enemy at the Gates. An enemy mm-hmm. at the gate is a little bit more uh, dramatic. It has some fun elements. It has a romantic il- ish, you know, relationship as well. But the, the way in which you see individuals go into the line of fire versus the masses of numbers as well, who are often pushed into the front lines um, and, and the to-and-fro baiting that mm. takes place with enemies on the front line, uh, you have duels it's essentially the story of two snipers who are dueling Mm -hmm. um one german one russian so it's it's interesting to see the different levels of analysis the different personalities involved and um this switch that takes place between uh recruit and civilian
0: we've been listening to christopher harrison Talking about his new book, Genocidal Conscription, Drafting Victims and Perpetrators Under the Guise of War, published by Lexington Press. Chris, thank you very much for your time. I always end with the same question. What are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm attempting to put together an analysis of migrants who have deserved oppressive and authoritarian regimes huh. that would otherwise be conscripts themselves. Mm. It's in the early stages, and I, I'm looking at refugee studies um, in various cases, including Syria, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, South Sudan, also Afghanistan and Russia too. Um, and so there are there are the a multiple of different cases I'm attempting to figure out. Um, and so I'll, I'll see how that goes over the next few months and maybe a year or so um, to figure out precisely what that looks like. But other than that, I've also I'm just wrapping up a piece that is a historical Historical review of conscription from the beginning of the French Revolution 1789 mm. through to 2022 with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And on that uh, piece, it's a chapter in a, uh, the handbook of um, social global change. Mm. That piece is on especially gender dynamics, how modern conscription has impacted gender relations, gender roles, in many different societies.
0: Excellent. Well, I hope that you will um, be able to uh, come back on the New Books Network at some point in the future and talk about some more projects. But until then, thank you so much for your time. And um, have a wonderful last week or two before classes start.
1: Thanks very much, Kelly. Appreciate it.